Welcome back to Ortho Insider, the Canadian Orthopedic Association's podcast where we go behind the scenes and look at the human side of orthopedic surgery. Today we're recording in Calgary at the Canadian Orthopedic Association's annual meeting. And on today's episode, we actually have a homegrown surgeon, Dr. Cassandra Lane Dealworth. Although she's originally from Calgary, she now practices in Kelowna, British Columbia as a sports trauma and arthroplasty surgeon. And she is the current president of the British Columbia Orthopedic Association. I can tell you from firsthand experience as an executive member of the BCOA that Lane has done an absolutely incredible job for our cause, for care and mobility for all in BC. Welcome, Lane. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. Tell us about your journey into orthopedics. Oh, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I grew up here in Calgary, so it's, it's really nice to be back home. Um, I had a lot of fun with both family and colleagues this, this week, so it's been, it's been a really unique experience. Um, so I grew up here, and then I actually uh, traveled out to the U- United States. I played hockey in college, and so I went to upstate New York, and then I went to, um, after that, I wasn't quite ready to return home, so I went to uh, medical school in Boston University. Um, so it was fun to spend some time in the Northeast uh, United States. Um, and I never actually wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, I wanted to be a pediatrician, actually, of all things. And so I did my uh, your first two years, and I started clerkship. had them all organized based around uh, pediatrics. And I just went through rotation after rotation saying, oh, no, I don't really like this. Too it's, much rounding. Yeah, too much rounding at all. I was even questioning if I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't really know what it meant to be a doctor. I'd never met a doctor before, never knew anything about surgery. I thought surgery was gross. Um, and, uh, and so it was, it was kind of strange. It was towards the end of my third, third year, I was pre- feeling pretty lost. Um, and I started my surgery rotation just by fluke. My secondary uh, surgery rotation was orthopedics. You could have gotten any of the subspecialties, but I was signed to orthopedics. And I remember I, you know, scrubbed in that first time and uh, went into the operating room and uh, there was a total hip being performed. And it was just like mind boggling. It was one of these situations like, what are you doing? How does that work? The physics, the, the physicality, like all these things. And I was, I was kind of mind blown. And I left that day very sad for myself because I didn't want to be a surgeon. But I think I was thinking, okay, this is, this is the route I think I want to go. And then serendipitously, that weekend, we had a whole class group go up skiing. And I was on a chairlift with a lady who had a hip replacement three months prior and she was out skiing and she just started talking to me didn't tell her anything about my background she just told me how this this hip replacement transformed her life and it was it was wonderful because I could see how orthopedics actually provides transformative care to people and I you know that that echoes home for all the advocacy stuff that I'm doing now is how orthopedics can actually make a person's life so much better. Yeah, so that's incredible because you have a huge role now as part of your career in advocacy, especially through the BCOA, especially through the Canadian Orthopedic Association. So tell us a little bit about that and how you're advocating for patients and surgeons. Yeah, it's 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 hard. Some days you kind of wish to, that, to go back to the states because it's so easy to access care. It's you, you don't have to fight day in day out for resources and things. Which it, at the end we're just out there, you know, fighting for our patients. And as we all know across all of Canada, that there's wait lists and there are limited resources and there's limited human resources. And so with these problems just being absolutely exponentially exposed during COVID, 
we're now in this time frame where we have to not only catch up, but we have to keep up. We talk about wait lists, we talk about wait times for surgery, wait one, all of these things that you hear people constantly talking about. But my point to most people is, you're talking about a wait list, but these are people. These are people waiting for life transforming care. Be it somebody who has end stage arthritis and are now using a walker, or be it a 16 year old female soccer player who is on her way to NCAA college and suffers an ACL tear. You know, everybody deserves um, a fighting chance to get the care that they need. And it's, it's led me on this journey. It kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, I was part of the BCOA executive and, and we were starting, how do, we, how do we get our government to realize there's a problem in British Columbia? Because the difference in BC was really, that I found anyways, is our, our government was applauding themselves for what they were doing. Whereas in, in other provinces, there would be this understanding, hey, we got a COVID backlog, we have this and this and this, and let's figure out how to work together. And in British Columbia, we would just keep seeing news stories about how well we were doing and, oh, we've caught up on all the surgeries from COVID. And on the executive meetings with the BCOA, we would say, what? That doesn't make any sense. I, I, I don't know where they're getting their numbers. And then there, was, there wasn't a great line. There wasn't any line for me or any of the BCOA to go to the next stage to, to get the word out there that that wasn't the case. We tried through many different politically appropriate directions and eventually we, we had to go to the media because we just weren't, weren't being heard. And so that's how I kind of fell into the role as BCOA president uh, as well as this whole advocacy charge was, was basically, it was by accident, but it's, it's, been, it's been a wild trip. And now I'm part of the advocacy team for not just orthopedics, but, but specialists across British Columbia. It's, it's interesting you say that there's that disconnect between what the government has in terms of their numbers and what we're seeing in real life as part of the British Columbia Orthopedic Association. As you now sit on the consultant specialist of British Columbia as well as the Ministry of Health, how do you approach that when there's such a disconnect and when such like a difference of perspectives between the two sides? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I, I'm, I'm working with the team right now, uh, like you said, with a consultant specialist at BC and the ministry. But it, it's all, it is very much a little bit of an us versus them. You know, it's, it's very hard and, and we have to find common ground. And when it comes to the ministry, they, they, of course, they have their best interests of patients in mind, but they also have their careers and their um, status in office and, and markers that they want to check off. And unfortunately, what ends up happening quite a bit is sometimes get into this hamster wheel of here's what we're going to do. Oh, but then, you know, four other crises come up and then we're back down and then it just keeps going around in circles. So really right now we're just struggling to, to stay in the room continue having those conversations so we can work towards a positive change for all specialists. Specialists, but especially orthopedic surgeons as a subspecialist of specialists, we're a very small group. So in that big room, how do we stay relevant? Because as you say, there's crisis after crisis after crisis, right? How do we not fall off the board? I think it's our patients. I think it's I think it's the stories of our patients, because when you think when when the majority of medicine thinks about orthopedic surgery, you know, the term elective is really held for a lot of what we do. And I, and I really think the term elective is, is not an appropriate word. These, these, these patients are not choosing to have surgery. They have a significant problem that needs surgery. And so, you know, maybe we need to talk, 
completely changed the way we talk about orthopedic surgery, um, you know, scheduled surgery or whichever it is. But this term elective, I think, is, is such a misnomer for these patients going through pain, you know, uh, immobility, uh, narcotic use, loss of jobs, you know, strain on family relationships. That's not elective to them at all. So my role right now is really about sharing that orthopedic story. Even some of our colleagues in surgery don't really understand how life transforming can be until maybe one of their friends or colleagues or parents or whichever goes through the orthopedic journey. And so how I try to keep us in the, in, in the circle is one, the volume. We're not, a, not a, a huge amount of surgeons or specialists in the province, but the volume of surgery we do is incredible and the need is incredible. And just really trying to keep our presence there to understand that, that we're important too. Our patients matter too, because we don't do a lot of cancer care. And that's where we've kind of fall off in orthopedics is that, you know, the cancer surgeries are so important, but as soon as there, there's, you know, resource allocation problems, nursing problems, anything like that, the cancer care and, and some of those more urgent surgeries get done. And, and then we're left behind again with orthopedics where, where we, we're not getting those resources because of our elective nature of surgery. You know, when I'm going to government and into these certain situations, we're coming now with ideas. For, for a long time, we, we say, oh, our patients, we have a long wait list. Oh, you know, you know, the family doctors, you know, got all these resources and, and you know, cancer surgery is getting all this and all this stuff. And if we just keep saying those things without ideas for change, we get nowhere. And I think we've been, that is how we've actually got ourselves a little bit more in the door and why maybe I keep getting invited back to these meetings because at many of the meetings, I don't actually belong. I just, they just keep inviting me back. So I'm going to go as long as they continue to invite me back to the meetings. But I think it is about, you know, not just saying, you know, the kind of the poor me, poor orthopedic surgeons, poor surgery, poor all this stuff. No. Okay. Our patients are suffering. Here's five ideas of how we move forward. How do we actually change this? Even in our model with the resources we have, the money we have, why don't we change our allocation of dollars within the Ministry of Health to try and prioritize things for change? So being more solutions-based, and as you said exactly. before, thinking outside the box a little bit to kind of come up with these creative solutions. And you touched on it just a little bit, but can you expand a little more? I mean, is this a patient-led advocacy uh, in terms of going to their MPs or their government, or is this more something that we have to work with governments to kind of get more resources? Because that is really where it's at, the strain is at. That's a really good question because at the end of the day, it is going to be the patients who make a difference. And I can be out there talking till I'm blue in the face, you know, trying to tell, tell the story of, of how hard it is for patients. But until we have patients out there telling their story, you know, saying how important surgery was for them, maybe a couple of success stories, and then those people who are waiting in pain, you know, telling them exactly what their life is like. And then, and then it's just about triggering triggering that government's here but it's when there's such limited resources it does take crises you know in BC recently we had our family doctor crisis where the offices were closing their doors so they had proof that it was a crisis and it drove the government into into response but it's it's hard to do that with orthopedics we're not closing our offices you know we're not you know our patients are, are waiting a long time but people don't see how important that is so really it's about just shedding light on 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 why what we do is important as you've transitioned or 
pivoted a little bit to this leadership role within the uh, BC Orthopedic Association and you're talking with government more and more. In our training, we don't learn about any of that. We don't learn about how to communicate, how to deal with politics, how to strategize, how to play the game almost. Was it difficult for you to dive right into that? And I know you took some media training, maybe tell us a little bit about that, but how do you navigate all that literal politics when you're working with government? That's a, that's a great question because there's so many things we don't learn in residency. You know, we, we learn a lot about the science of medicine, but we, we don't learn about the art of medicine very well. And so I was lucky it came pretty natural to me. And when things, when I care about something, it's easy to be passionate. When it's something you're passionate about and when you see patients struggling and, and when you know that if you can really grasp the, the concept and get it out there, it may actually help some people. What makes me tick? is making change and bringing orthopedics to a different state. That's my goal with the BCOA. I want to take it to a different state from where I got it, hopefully better. Uh, but that's, you know, just, just staying stagnant in 2023 is actually going backwards. So we need to move forward. We have to have forward thinking. Um, I think I have a bit of an ability to think outside, understanding that, that although I need to advocate for orthopedics, there is multiple crises that are happening within our province. And if you can jump onto those as well and you're talking about surgery for all and resources and how can we can split up inpatient or outpatient surgery all these things will benefit us as orthopedic surgeons so i'm lucky i've been able to have a little bit of that kind of more broad scoped view of course i still have us orthopedic surgeons in the in the background but i think understanding that if we as we advocate for medicine and for specialists and for surgery all of us should should benefit from that and most importantly the patients i did when, when the, the whole thing came on, we started with the media campaign. It was, again, it, it was by accident. I was on the executive, the president at the time asked for help. Um, I got on with our, our, our media uh, trainer who we hired through the BCOA. And it was just, it was, for some reason, it was felt almost natural because it was something I cared about a lot. It sounded natural. You know, I was on the executive with you when you did that and it, for me, changed the tide almost. It showed us that there was somebody standing up there advocating for us and trying to get the resources, trying to get our patients in. So, you know, you talked about maybe leaving the BCOA in a better state. I mean, I personally can say that I think you have done that. Well, thank um, you. No, well, thank that. you for, for doing that. A lot of this seems to be around really good communication, and you're obviously a very natural leader. How did your experience playing NCAA hockey affect your career and your leadership style? Well, I think uh, as a team-based athlete, a team has been something I've been used to since I was very young uh, and and having roles within a team and and uh, you know exchanging roles and and gaining more leadership and uh, within the teams themselves I mean I captained many many teams uh, in in the course of uh, my hockey and basketball and volleyball career through high school and then and then playing NCAA hockey I think it's just it's a, you know there's even then there's a big time and life balance where you have to be training and and you know go traveling on the weekends and morning practices but then you also have to do your schooling and I think when you're in those environments it becomes easier to then take that those skills uh, back to the rest of your life with you and so I think that's probably mostly where I, I gained some of my leadership skills if I have any <laughs> you do you make a wonderful point because even as we begin our training as a resident, 
work-life balance is crucial mostly because you have a full-time job as a resident, more than a full-time job as a resident, and you're essentially a full-time student and you're trying to balance everything. You know, we see it now. I mean, it leads to incredible burnout in some people. You seem to do this wonderful job of balancing everything. You know, you have a family, you have four kids, you, you know, are at, you know, doing all this advocacy stuff, all this leadership. You maintain a very strong and high volume clinical practice. How do you balance it all? It's, that's, it's a good question. And I, and I think I balance it, but I don't know, you know, like, and I think only time will tell how long I can do it for. And when I first started at the BCOA, I just thought I had to do everything. You know, I have this idea and this idea and, you know, we need to change our fee schedule and we need to do this and we need to do that. And all the ideas are great, but then it becomes a bit overwhelming. So I think for me, what I've tried to do is kind of take one initiative at a time and just do it really well, as best as I know how. And, and then as you go forward to the BCOA, it is, it is time consuming. It is, and it's, it is a, it, nobody really teaches you how to do it. You know, we don't have this huge organization or organizational structure. Even the COA has a bit of like an organizational structure now, which we don't really have at the BCOA. So you come in and it's, it is a bit like you're blind. Um, so the beginning was a lot more stressful. And as I've, you know, figured out time management skills and things like that, you know, using your team, I think is so important. And it took me almost a year to really be able to, to call on other people and, and use a team because you can't do it all by yourself, just like you can't do a surgery by yourself, you know, without the nurses, anesthesiologists, the recovery room and the hospital there to take care of them after you cannot do a surgery. And when you, when you realize you're only part of a team, no matter where you are in that hierarchy of that team, I think that people who really get into burnout are those who, who try to take it all on themselves, which I was, I'm definitely guilty uh, of doing quite a bit. And that's where I'm trying to find my balance is, is how do you, you know, how do you do all this well, but also understand how to delegate, um, how to um, how to prioritize. And I'll tell you, I'm still working through it. You know, um, I love my clinical practice. Um, and so it is what, you know, drives me at the end of the day. So it's it's fun to be able to go and actually, you know, do those surgeries at the end of the day, because that's kind of that rewarding thing. And then I have a busy family and, you know, it's uh, I've got four kids, uh, eight six-year-old twins and four and they're 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 busy and I have an incredibly supportive spouse and um, you have to give them credit for you know I couldn't do any of the stuff I was doing without support uh, support at home if you spoke to my spouse there might be a little difference in terms of how do you balance it all like I think I think I could do a, maybe a bit better job but but I'm trying and it's it's fun so far because there are results it's rewarding I think burnout would happen to me if I was just kept knocking on the same door without any uh, entrances opening or anything like that. And that because we're making, you know, positive forward change, it becomes rewarding and it gives you more energy to keep going. In terms of balance, for the young and aspiring surgeons, for the people that you're aiming to mentor, what advice would you give them to get through a busy residency and then afterwards a busy clinical life mixed with academics, mixed with advocacy and mixed with family? Yeah, I think that you have to realize that work is only part of our life uh, and family is an important part too. And, and for me, I'm just, I'm extremely lucky to have a very supportive group and, and the entire group in Kelowna um, all believes very heavily in work-life balance and luckily our overhead is a little bit lower and, and, and a little bit uh, a lower cost of living. So there is, there were 
easier able to, you know, not have to just get out there and keep up with the Jones Joneses and, and take some time for ourselves. But, but for me, work life, my work life balance is inspired by my colleagues, uh, who I work with. Um, and, and if you, if you have a group like that who's supportive of you, you know, like I can't take that over a day because I've got the kids that day, or I need to take. I'm going. Uh, I'm taking my kid on his hockey tournament or something like that. Nobody, nobody blinks an eye. There's not. I don't even have. have there's no explanation because we've all gone through it. And you know what's incredible for us is the the older guys in the group have all gone through it before. And they're more than happy to, you know, pick up that award if it works out for them or, or, or whichever. You know, I can't, uh, the, the best example was when I was pregnant. Um, and I was, I was very, I had a lot of hypotension. So uh, I would be in the operating room and the nurses would have three different stools uh, around the room behind me. For how, wherever I was in the room, we called it the emergency stool because I would get dizzy and I would almost pass out at least once or twice, uh, once or twice a day. And then it was over Christmas time and, you know, your call over Christmas, everybody else is away and I got sick. I got a, I had a, a gastro bug uh, and I was throwing up and I just couldn't keep my, you know, my blood pressure up. And I was in the PA, uh, PACU with an IV in my arm between cases, trying to keep myself going. And, and, you know, as orthopedic surgeons, we don't, we're not complainers, you know, like we just kind of push through because we think that's our job, you know, and. Is that ingrained in us in residency beforehand? I have absolutely no idea where that comes from, but we, we have this kind of push to just keep going. And then uh, it was a couple of days later when I got this email because the story of what had happened had, had kind of trickled through and gotten back to my group. And it wasn't, uh, it, it, it was, it was just showed the support that they did. And I had this, this email that said, Lane, I just want to let you know you're off of call. Our group is, you know, here's the new call schedule of who's covering on each day. Um, you're welcome to keep all of your elective time, but if you don't want it, you know, just let us know and we can, we can take it over. And there's, there's no better story of support from a group of colleagues than that. Um, and it would just, it, it showed me that, you know, this, this, this group of people were supportive of what I was doing in my life and were there to help me uh, when it was needed. And it really inspired me to now hopefully be able to pay it forward. And if younger colleagues come in and there's situations where we've had, you know, family emergencies and all that stuff, we all just kind of step up for each other. And I think that's a huge part of work-life balance because if you have a really good group of colleagues who understand the ups and downs of life, because we are surgeons, but we are humans and humans go through stuff. Um, and so when, you know, if, for me, I'm so lucky. I find myself so lucky to be uh, with a group who's so supportive, and that really helps. And they're supportive of me taking a little bit of time to do the BCOA stuff. They're supportive because they know I'm trying to make positive change. That's incredible you have a group like that. You know, Unfortunately, as you can probably mm -hmm. attest to, it's yeah. more rare than people exactly. would think. So yeah. I fortunately had the opportunity to rotate through Kelowna uh, as a resident, and that absolutely was one of the things that struck me the most. And how for lack of a better word, normal everybody was. Everybody really cared about that work-life balance. It strikes me about your stories from your pregnancy. I don't know, but I, I have the impression that that is not an uncommon thing to go through for someone who's pregnant. Do you find that there is an unreasonable expectation for somebody to, like you said, continue to work through the pregnancy to these extremes? The studies are out there that, that um, uh, perinatal complications are through the roof orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic residents 
Um, and I think situations like this start, uh, start into a call for action um, because we don't know how to self-protect. I don't know why, like I said, for orthopedic surgeons, we just have this drive. We can't call in sick. We can't do that. And, and maybe the guard is changing. I don't know. But I know for my group and for sure the guys before me, um, there's just this, this fundamental need to just keep going. Um, and I was lucky to have such a supportive group. But even within my own hospital, in a different group, one of my colleagues had a completely different experience where any call that she took off, she was it was written down and she would pay it back in the future and, and those stories are not uncommon and so i think you know it, it's hard how, how how do we advocate because every every health authority is different every group is different and that's a, that's a huge problem in orthopedics is we don't have these we don't have these kind of bylaws that we all adhere to you know, there's so many things that come up, practice sharing, you know, um, retirement, uh, all these things that it would be so great just to have this kind of set of guidelines or, or, or suggestions. And, and I'm so proud to say that the COA is working through that right now. And they, you know, I wasn't a huge part of it, just kind of just along with the periphery, but the, you know, the parental pregnancy and parental leave working group. And, and they're, they're coming up with guidelines. And, and I know when they're complete, I will take them to the BCOA and... Uh, share them with the entire province of orthopedic surgery saying this this is this is the data here's the evidence and we would really like to support anybody going through pregnancy surrogacy adoption you know parental leave both male and female uh, and and try to find ways that we you know do this better not just because because i'm lucky to have a great group who's supportive but because it's right um, and then hopefully that goes to the doctors of bc and we can disseminate it further and it becomes it becomes the norm you know, we got to change our norm at some point. And change the culture, you know. Yeah. It's great the Canadian Orthopedic Association is trying to tackle some of that unconscious bias and some of these, you know, issues and topics. And like I said, taking the lead on all these action plans, which is wonderful. And it's amazing you're part of that. You've done all these amazing work from uh, this small little hospital, <laughs> community <laughs> hospital in Kelowna. And there's been a trend and there's a symposium on a last year, the, uh, the Canadian Orthopedic Association, where if you work in a community hospital, I don't know, for the lack of a better term, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. You can do a lot of things. Everyone in a community hospital now is dual fellowship trained and able to, to achieve amazing things. So tell us a little bit about that and how that's uh, turned out for you. Yeah, I think, well, for me, when I was going through residency, I always, I always saw myself as this big academic surgeon. I was, again, I wanted to make a difference. Didn't know what that meant. I wasn't a huge researcher though, and I was kind of a little lost. I didn't love doing research, but I did quality improvement projects and, and things like that. But I was always I was always pining for something to do with academia because I love teaching. I love being involved with the residents and the medical students and things like that. And with with the job crunch and, and a few other things, it wasn't it wasn't there for me when I first first graduated and, and did a couple of locums and then this job opportunity came up in Kelowna. And I think somewhat in our training, we get ingrained, it was ingrained in us, at least in BC, that the community hospital was almost, you know, almost less than. It was almost like, oh, look what happened in the community. Oh, this happened out in the community. And and we we thought this community was this big, dark place where people didn't know what they were doing. Um, and that's really changing in Canada because because of the job crisis, right? So people are not doing two fellowships because they love trauma and arthroplasty. People are doing two fellowships out of necessity because time and now everybody's dual fellowship trained. So if you're going out to a hospital and you have one, they're like, well, 
what's happened, you know, um, which I don't think we need to do. And I think maybe we need to find our way back out of that. But at the same time, it's, it's really changed what the community is because the community used to be you finish your orthopedic residency and you start work. These are not, you know, subspecialty trained surgeons. And it's really changed over the last 20 years. And so, you know, I live and work in Kelowna, which is a community hospital. But then when you actually look at it, we have our own medical school. Um, I have family medicine residents and medical students every day um, involved in the coordination of uh, UBC residents, UFC residents, and actually residents across Canada coming for rotations in their, in their fourth year. And then keeping the connections from UBC, I've realized that I can still be part of the university from afar. And that's a big initiative from Kishore uh, as our chairman um, to, to try and connect the, the province. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's important to realize that the community is no longer less than. You know, the community is what you make of it. And I have colleagues who go to work, do their surgery, go home. They teach during the day, but there's not really a lot more uh, that they desire or want to do with the university or anything like that. And I have many colleagues who are very involved in the university, uh, in, in projects and things like that. So I think, it, you know, going forward, the understanding that probably every hospital in Canada is going to have subspecialty trained individuals who might be an asset to the university, to the Canadian Orthopedic Association, to the British Columbian Orthopedic Association, and so on and so forth, because I think we all have a lot to offer. Absolutely. So Lane, if somebody wants to get a hold of you to collaborate or learn more from you or maybe work with your advocacy projects, how would they get in touch with you? Mm, I'm too busy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so through our BCOA website uh, is, is a nice avenue. You know, I have my social media, so I have a professional and a personal account. So um, at Dr. Dealwort is my professional one. And then, you know, well, and if we can put my email address, I, I never have any problems with people contacting me directly for for anything. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for your insight. Uh, it's been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.